0: Probably again, what I'm going to start on this evening and to finish off obviously what I was talking about last night and then start on something else and we probably won't get through that. Um, (laughs) I just talk too much, this is a problem. (laughs) Um, We'll probably get through this on one of the other evenings. Um, Tomorrow night, by the way, just to remind you, will be a question and answer session. So it won't be a Dharma talk tomorrow. It'll be simply some questions and answers hopefully give you a chance to having had some chance to reflect perhaps on some of the things that are being said, uh, then to come back with some questions or queries or disagreements, even, uh, I'd be interested to see what happens. Okay, let's back to the Vipalasas, back to these uh, four distortions of mind or four distortions of perception. We were dealing with, and we didn't really get that, far last night in many senses. As I said, this could probably represent a whole week's worth, just these four particular things. Uh, We were talking last night about sensing no change in the changing, and quite a lot of what I devoted my time to last night was just simply talking about impermanence. And obviously the difficulty that there is in actually beginning to really see impermanence within our own lives and to, to grasp that impermanence, to actually embrace it. Now, the one thing I think that probably strikes us all at particular times, sometimes more than others, is that actually life can be quite difficult. Yeah, I don't know if that's uh, something that's ever struck you, uh, but life actually is quite a struggle sometimes to get through. Um, we're dealing here with one of the basic factors that the Buddha is speaking about in this, which is, you know, dukkha. Um, We often try to solve dukkha by engaging in pleasure-seeking. In many ways, these first two of the um, ennobling tasks or ennobling truths um, in many senses, they're tasks because they're things to be done, not things to be believed in. The first that the Buddha speaks about are almost considered to be the very, very foundation of the Buddhist path. In fact, the very foundation of many bring, for, in many senses, bring people to the path of meditation in general, which is a feeling of unsatisfactoriness, a feeling of something not being quite right in life, or it could be just out and out real suffering. You know, either physical suffering, the loss of a loved one, and all of the sort of things that often bring people to meditation. Or it can just be a general sense of disquiet about life. Now, the normal ways that perhaps we deal with this sense of disquiet with, in relationship to life is to try and cover it over. Try and, you know, try and hide it try and divert ourselves, try and distract ourselves from actually confronting it. Um, And that really leads us into the second of these ennobling truths or tasks, which is the truth of craving. I remember I spoke about this a little last night, craving tanha, this wonderful word in Pali, which uh, really doesn't, doesn't really have an equivalent in the sense of being able to capture the pathos behind the human condition. That in order to escape, to evade, to try and distract ourselves, literally from sheer, the sheer difficulty of life, a lot of the time that we'll engage in, for example, um, craving activities. Activities where we want to, for example compensate ourselves for the difficulties of life. It's a bit like coming home from work after a hard day and eating all the forbidden things. (laughs) All of the things that you know that you shouldn't be eating. The sugar addiction starts here, um, usually at the end of a hard day's work. Well, in many senses, if you extrapolate that, this can be seen as part of the if you like, the patterning of the way that we often deal with dukkha in our ordinary lives. We deal with it by compensatory behaviours. Those compensatory behaviours are actually um, captured, in many senses, in the symptom of craving. So craving becomes a response to the mere facticity of dukkha in our lives, the mere facticity of there being something not quite right. In my early days in studying in India, I was very fortunate to um, study with one of the Dalai Lama's teachers at the time. He was in one of the monasteries where I lived in. And he used to describe Dukkha this way. Dukkha, by the way, remember, is is usually standardly translated as suffering, but it means so, so much more. It's this vast spectrum word that covers everything from mild irritation, mild dissatisfaction, up to the major tragedies of life, including great sickness and death. But the Dalai Lama's teacher, Lingramsha, used to actually say it was like this. He said that dukkha wasn't like being stabbed. It wasn't sharp and painful for the most part. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Can you imagine that? Just rubbing your arm slowly against the brick wall. doesn't start off terribly painful, but by by the sheer repetition of it, I think you would find yourself with very little flesh at the end of it. Um, It has that very abrasive, wearing quality. This is one of the characteristics of Dukkha within our lives. It wears us down. Even just the sense, psychologically, of dissatisfaction, of constantly being in a state of, of unsatisfied wants and needs. Um, in all every area of life, even when we get the desired object, the very thing perhaps we've striven for, in our lives, saved up for, when we've got it, what happens? There's generally a dissatisfaction, even around that, that creeps in in not too distant a time frame. It usually starts to creep in quite quickly and then you're craving something else. Yeah. Craving is endless. It has no terminal point. This is one of the major aspects of the Buddha's diagnosis of our craving condition, that it actually has no terminal object. There is nothing ultimately which will satisfy us. Depressing, isn't it? If we think about that, there is nothing ultimately. This world is not going to satisfy you. No matter how much you look for stuff externally, uh, there will be nothing that will ultimately quell that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense of of you know wanting something, uh, needing something to provide a sen- sense of completeness where I can rest, where I can rest as if i 've um, got everything I need, I mean how many people i mean and perhaps you 've even done this for yourself, you know how many people have told themselves. Ooh, if I only I had that particular object or was with that particular person, then I would just be happy. And what happens? Another big cause for dukkha. Yeah. We usually end up with the thing or the person or the you know, the place we want to be and it starts to pall. Yeah, the actual experience of it starts to wane, generally quite quickly. Um... Now, I don't think I'm being cynical here. I just think this is one of the facets of life that if we look closely at our own lives, we begin to see uh, the moment we start to move in close to it, that there is this general sense of dissatisfaction um, and nothing external will really provide it for us. No security, no... um, No material goods are going to actually satisfy and bring this to an end this is the state of the human condition this is what the buddha really is dealing with now in ancient india of his own time okay they were just as materialistic as we were except the materials were just different you just had a kind of you know the latest model elephant <laughs> 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 or something like that <laughs> Yeah, you know, my, my turbo-charged elephant. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so the the symbols, the symbols are different, um, but actually the striving is still the same. The striving for things which represent often wealth and power and success and all the things that we associate. Now, one of the things that we do know, just from what's going on in contemporary societies, and particularly Western societies at the moment, is that with the spread of affluence, and despite all the recession and that, there's still a lot of affluence in Western societies. Despite the growth in affluence, and the spread of affluence throughout our societies, <coughs> depression is on the increase. Yeah. Depression is a state of mind is on the increase. I think this shows in a sense, or demonstrates in a sense, the failure of the Western materialistic dream to satisfy everybody's needs. Our needs are actually far greater than than all of the material goods and any of the pleasures that material goods can give us. I'm not saying that we should dispense with all of this, I'm just saying let's get it in perspective. This is very much, again, part of the distortions of perception that the Buddha is speaking about, that we think you know, that we can find that sense of satisfaction through these things. I'm sorry to keep harping on about this. I know I went on about this quite a lot yesterday. But I think it's such an important dimension that we really need to examine in terms of our own life, where we externalize our search and place it on something which is very, very much outside of ourselves. The Buddha is trying to get us to come to the realization that the only genuine happiness, the only genuine contentment, is the contented mind. Not the mind that, you know, wants the agitated mind. That is not a contented mind. The mind which is, if you like, dukkhaing, this is another verb, in Pali, um, the mind that is dukkering is an agitated mind. It's wanting something. It's often, again, propelled into this external search rather than actually look for where it is. And let's let's face it, what we've been doing, literally the source of contentment is literally under your nose. It's our breath to a degree. Um, The embracing of that the embracing of our sense of being in this world um, is far greater than any of the material affluence. You know, obviously, a certain amount is needed um, to keep life and limb together in this world. But we go beyond the bounds often in just collecting. Um, as I said last night, collecting and holding on to even stuff that we've got tired of, no longer like. We cannot give it away. It's as if our grasp, our clinging to it is so great that uh, we cannot relinquish. We find it very, very difficult to give up. So, these first two ennobling truths, why are they ennobling? You know, the word in Pali is aria, you know, the same derivative as the word Aryan. Aria means to ennoble or be noble. This was often associated with a race of people in India. The northern Indians were considered to be Arya people. Aryan, they spoke Aryan languages. Um, Sanskrit and all the northern Indian languages, including Pali, are derivatives of these Aryan, Aryan or noble languages. Now, the Buddha is redefining what it means to be noble in this world, to be ennobled. Um, There is nothing noble about suffering. There is nothing noble about dukkha. However, the inquiry into it is what is the ennobling process. The inquiry into um, its conditions, its symptomatology. And here the symptomatology is the craving that results. And our inquiry into where that craving takes us is also... Part of the ennobling process. So the moment we start to look a bit further inwards, now the inwards here doesn't mean cutting ourselves off from the external world. All of this, all of this inquiry, all of the meditation, all of the things that the Buddha teaches only makes sense in a, in a world which is engaged in. You know? Even the monastic tradition. Um, the, the, the Buddha pulled a, a lovely, fast trick on all his monastics. All these people wanted to renounce the world. This is, yeah, this is a tradition in India. It still is to even this day. They were called some Shramaneras or Samanas in the Indian tradition. People who wanted to renounce the world, who wanted to drop all the material pursuits, take themselves off to the forest. And the Buddha founded another group of Shramaneras. He founded another group of renunciates. However, he pulled this wonderful trick on them. He said, you want to renounce the world, I will make you dependent on everything that you need on society. Including your clothes, your food, everything. Because actually there is no real ultimate renouncing of the world. We have to be engaged with it. And this was, you know, even in his monastic tradition that the Buddha founded two and a half thousand years ago, he was trying to make this clear by making those monastics, those who opted for that life, to be dependent on societies and what society had to provide for them. So we can't actually get away from it. It's, it's a very, very important part of it. So all of the practices, particularly the meditation practices, only make sense in a world which is engaged with and in. You know? This is why it's a practical teaching. It's not in some senses, a mystical opt-out, op, you know, mystical opt-out, of trying to get into some blissed-out state, It's actually a practical way of being able to get engaged in the world, where we lessen and start to not magnify the dukkha that is there within the world. If you've noticed the human mind, it's a wonderful magnifying object it will take whatever it sees and magnify it. Yeah. We, can cre- we can create dukkha out of almost nothing. Yeah. Out of the smallest little thing that arises that is you know, just not going our way. Um, and we become like children stamping our feet. Yeah. And actually creating dukkha in this world. We, we actually create it for ourselves. It's like putting something under the lens of a magnifying glass. Now, one of the things often that's spoken about, there's a number of different forms of Dukkha. Um, one of them is Dukkha Dukkha, <laughs> which is pain. Yeah, we've seen, or I tried to give you an indication yesterday, this is something even the Buddha can't avoid. You know, Dukkha Dukkha. Um, He has a a fleshly human body like um, all of us. In the very earliest tradition in the Pali Canon, the Buddha is portrayed very, very much as a person, not as any kind of super mystical hero at all. That happens much later in the history of Buddhist thought. Uh, In the very earliest stages, he's he's a human, he's born and he dies. Um, This is what happened. He gets sick, he gets old and he dies. And in that you know, fleshly human existence, in that corporeal existence, he suffers like we do. He suffers from physical pain. There is a wonderful story in something which is known as Sangyuta Nika, which I'm going to quote a bit of later on in another context. But in the Sangyuta Nika, which is actually this huge collection of texts, a very, very small texts, purportedly given by the Buddha, there is a story, a discourse called The Discourse of the Stone Splinter, and this talks about the Buddha for various reasons walking along the road um, and a shard of stone is, is chipped off a rock. And he's walking, and as you would have done in India in that period, it would only been the very wealthy who could afford anything to put on their feet. He would have been walking barefoot. He steps on this shard of stone. It says it penetrates his foot. And this causes the Buddha immense pain. But it says in parenthesis, but no dukkha. Yeah. Now I think that's a very interesting little story because it tells you something about the nature of a lot—not all—the nature of a lot of dukkha is that it is mind-created. Yeah. It's a psychological condition. Of course, there is physical pain, and this is inevitable. You know, as I say, we have these corporeal bodies. Um, we spent, you know, last few days looking at bodily processes. Um, we have these fleshly bodies and these fleshly bodies get easily damaged and there will be pain. We get sick. This body gets sick. It's not, un- it's not under our control. You know, We have accidents. Things happen to us. And we will experience pain. But one of the things you don't find in this little story, um, which would have been the dukkering part of it, would be the Buddha getting really upset that Joe Monk behind him didn't step on the splinter rather than him. he's not railing about the fact that he is the one who's got the splinter in his foot there is the kind of acceptance of the very fact of the painfulness of this condition so the moment we begin to open ourselves even to pain and embrace it by accepting it then we cease in some senses to magnify it to make it even worse. So getting irritated, getting angry, doing all the things that we often do psychologically with such a condition like pain um, only adds to the problem. It exacerbates it, it makes it even greater. What the teaching here is very much that you can dwell with the mere condition without having to magnify it, without adding anything to it. It's like having your pain without additives, where the additive is provided by our mental condition. To embrace and to accept this, the Buddha says, is the wise thing to do. He's really giving us a teaching that this is the wise thing to do. To embrace it is a wisdom. To not embrace it, to try and push it away, to get angry, to get irritated, to fight it, is often simply to increase the levels of dukkha, and I could really almost just translate this as as suffering, that we are going to endure at this point. So, we cease to magnify physical pain, and we cease to magnify even some of the mental pains by not adding something to it not avoiding it, not ducking it, not falling into the next of the ennobling truths, which is the truth of the craving that almost is the concomitant result of experiencing this dukkha. We try to cover it up, we try to solve it, we try to do something which will divert our attention, as I've said earlier on, to divert our attention from this very fact of dukkha. We also try to divert our attention to one of the other major components of our dukkering experience, which is actually the dukkha of change. What's called Viparanama dukkha. Yeah. This is the dukkha of the change that we cannot affect. Change is going to happen. There's nothing we can do often to affect it. Yeah. Things are going to happen to us. As I said yesterday, we're going to get old, and we're going to go, and we're going to die. People who we love are going to get old and they're going to die. Yeah. This is part of the human condition. This is, again, something to be embraced. And I was talking yesterday about the embracing of finitude, you know, in talking even about some of the more mundane aspects. Well, not so mundane, but the beautiful aspects of experience, such as the cherry blossom. And how, for example, we embrace it and we see it as impermanent and its beauty is in its transience. Human life perhaps has a beauty in its transience if the life is well lived. This is something, again, I think the Buddha is trying to stress. The nobility, the ennobling part of being human is to realize our potentiality to be human in this world, to actually really embrace that sense of humanity with all of its frailty, but also with all of its opportunities. Now, in Buddhist terms, the opportunities of being human are the opportunities to display, to actually commit ourselves to a path of friendliness, to commit ourselves to a path of understanding the way the world is to commit ourselves um, to the path of generosity in our lives. All of these things are incredibly important. They're human potentials which often are unrealised for us. The potentiality for compassion and for compassionate action in this world is a potentiality all of us possess. In fact, all of us have probably engaged in these things from time to time in our lives, the generosity, the understanding, the friendliness, the compassion. All too often, though, it remains narrowly circumscribed. Uh, The numbers of people that we actually demonstrate these virtues to, they're often friends and family, those who are close to us, and others remain untouched by that sense of friendliness but remain untouched by that understanding, by that generosity or that compassion there. And what the Buddha is trying to get us to see that these are all potentialities that we can build on. They are actualities in a sense, but they are almost like small seeds as opposed to fully, you know, fully, fully realized flowers, blooms in our lives. And part of the being human is to actually begin to realize that, to begin to develop these dimensions in life. And to come finally to a realization where we stop the craving, we stop the aversion, and we stop running around in confused circles in our lives. I mean, doesn't that sound like relief? and release to cease to be averse to so many things in life to cease to be driven by this craving or greed for many things because we're trying to cover up just the basic facts of life the most basic difficulties of being human and of course that uh, we we cease to be propelled into these forms yeah This, I don't know, as I say, I'll leave it for you to judge, this sounds to me like a wonderful repose, a wonderful uh, sense of peacefulness in our lives. So we become less driven, less striving for things which ultimately are, again, related to these distortions of perception. We run after things which we appear to be beautiful. They appear to be beautiful because... They are going to somehow provide us again with a sense of satisfaction, and we want to possess them. So the greed often is to possess something which we perceive to be beautiful. More often than not, these things turned out not to be so beautiful, and then just exacerbate, just fuel, fuel the craving, want as want, you know, fueling as wanting to have more you know, not wanting to have other aspects in our lives. And so we're in this state of being constantly stimulated by what appears to be beautiful, what actually turns out to be not so beautiful. Because it actually creates unbeautiful states of mind, you know, unwholesome states of mind. You know, the craving and the miserliness and the covetousness um, that often goes with possession and lack of possession of things so again this is part of the distortion that we we perceive we literally take that which appears to be beautiful we take it up turn it into the beautiful and we want to possess it yeah. this can range from you know the material goods of the world to people you yeah. So we look at these distortions of perception and the way that they are actually the intrinsic dimension to the confusion which I spoke quite a lot about last night. The confusion which is, you know, almost seemingly part of the human condition. Yet the Buddha is saying this can come to an end, all of this can come to rest. Actually, most of us, a lot of, particularly teachers like myself who sit up the front, talk a lot about these first two things in, in the Ennobling Truths. We talk a lot about the Dukkha, and I've spoken quite a lot about it so far. I'll probably continue to do as well. Um, we speak a lot about that which in some sense is related to it, partly, is partly cause, but also partly symptom which is the craving that results. And there are different types of craving that we engage in, not just the craving for material and sensual objects. There are all kinds of craving um, that we can um, engage in. And I'll mention those very briefly as we go through. But you know, these, these two, whilst being extremely important, also have an end, which is the third. This is called the truth of Niroda, the truth of cessation. Niroda is a wonderfully fascinating word, again in Pali. I'm sorry to keep on about Pali words, but some of them actually have much more direct meanings than the English. we, We just simply translate it usually as cessation, and often that's the way it's heard within the tradition. But the actual literal meaning of the word Niroda means to stop leaking. Yeah, uh, And what it is, is to stop leaking one's unwholesome qualities onto the world. Yeah. This is uh, not a terribly edifying image, because it's a, in an image of sort of what I call unvirtuous incontinence. <laughs> <laughs> that we are actually, we can't help ourselves but leak these dimensions onto the world. We leak our aversion onto the world, we leak our craving onto the world, we leak, leak our dissatisfaction onto the world. Uh, why not? I mean, if you've got a good piece of dukkha, why not spread it around? <laughs> this seems to be part of what we do. This is seemingly what we do with um, with our dissatisfactions, with our cravings, with our aversions. We don't keep them to ourselves. We... we we like to spread them to others. And in some senses, this is part of the toxicity often that's present in human societies, <coughs> is that there is this spreading around of this general sense of dissatisfaction. And if you don't join in, there must be something wrong with you. Yeah. It's almost down to that. Now, this path that the Buddha delineates is path to the path of cessation, the path to nirvana. It is likened by the Buddha as literally swimming against the tide. Yeah. So if it ever does seem difficult, even just the path of meditation and what we're attempting to, I wouldn't say achieve, but some sense bring into being in our lives in this path of meditation, is going against the tide of what most of society is wanting, of what most of society is doing. Um most of society thrives and obviously these are big generalizations and we have to make distinctions when we look you know for example at our workplace and the people that we know and you know the societies that we inhabit but you know as a generalization I don't think it is too inaccurate to say that most societies thrive on agitation they thrive on the development of anxiety they thrive particularly economically on the um, stimulation of greed. Yeah. They survive on the stimulation of aversion, too, towards certain things. So there's a lot of stimuluses within society which this path is very counter to. Yeah. Is very, very counter to. If we think of equanimity, it's completely counter-cultural. Yeah. it's really counterculture, it's really in some senses revolutionary. You know, if you want to be a revolutionary these days, then you know, try to develop equanimity in the face of all of the pressures within society to conform to one of greed, aversion and delusion. Yeah. This is often what is written very, very large so when we look at you know the ways that we are stimulated often you know, often these are not necessarily even coming from our within our own psychology they're coming from the group psychology that is planted on us and that we are reacting to So to enter into this path to bring into being the literal meaning of what we usually translate as the word you know, as meditation the word is bhavana in Pali, which means to bring into being something. It means to actually cultivate something. It doesn't mean meditation at all. Um, This is, again, just part of the early translation. What we're attempting to do, for example, in this path, is bring into being qualities, such as calmness of mind, such as equanimity, such as friendliness. These are all the things that we're attempting to bring into being, and as I say, and I'll leave it to rest with you here, that these are often countercultural cultural virtues. Yeah. This is not the way our contemporary societies thrive. They thrive on agitation, greed, and aversion, and delusion. Yeah. So this is very, very revolutionary. To enter into this path, well, this path of cultivation goes against our cultures. So if ever seems difficult, and you've been practicing for a while, this is partly the reason why it feels difficult. The Buddha, even two and a half thousand years ago, was saying this. These are not my words when he says it's swimming against the tide. This is not the main drift of the bulk of people. So, these distortions of perception are actually part of our confused state just to remind you again of what they are seeing no change in the changing sensing pleasure in suffering assuming self where there is not self seeing the unlovely in the lovely the one I haven't dwelt with for any length is really the most difficult one here, which is assuming self where there is no self or where there is not self. This is one of the major dimensions of the Buddha's teaching. I mentioned it only very briefly last night in relationship to the idea of there being a lack of fixity within us. In some senses, it's yeah, again, I'm only reiterating what I said last night. It's written into the idea that everything is changing. You know? So, if there is if everything is changing, and really, if we do take heed of that—that that everything is in, that is changing—then why should we be the exception? Yeah. That there is no fixed, unchanging essence to ourselves. Yeah. Again, this appears to be counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because you know, when we look inside ourselves, then you know, it appears as if there is almost something which is omnipresent through our experience. Um, but this is not what primarily the Buddha is saying. When you know, I'm going to actually quote David Hume, the Scottish philosopher. He once said, you know, when every time I look for myself I, and I look inside myself for myself, I don't find a self. All I find, find are bundles of perceptions. That's is all. The philosopher Wittgenstein, again I've quoted this many, many times in this room, but I still like it as a quotation. The philosopher Wittgenstein in his philosophical investigations said he had the feeling that the self was merely a grammatical error. (laughs) Partly because of the way that our languages are formed. You know, our languages are formed, and Sanskrit and Pali are no different. They're formed on a subject-predicate basis, you know, where we have a subject and we have predicates of experience. So, you know, I am happy, I am sad. You know, I am irritated, I am joyful. So, actually, that form of language seems to encourage the idea that there has to be an I, something which is substantial. This works very well in English because the I is kind of monolithic, isn't it? You know, you have this first-person pronoun, the I. If you write it on a board, it's kind of like a monolithic little stick. Um, This sense of the I, by the way, the Buddha refers to as being like a dog tethered to a post, and all we do is run round and round and round it. So this sense of I becomes actually inhibitory. You know, it's that which prohibits and inhibits senses of change, allowing ourselves because we run round in circles, round this sense of who I am. You know, I am is a big story. Yeah. The Buddha calls it a delusion, a palpitation, yeah. And finally he calls it a conceit. Yeah. The notion of I am is a conceit that we have, that there is something fixed and unchanging in our experience that we can identify with and thereby create identity with, out of. It's almost as if we're terrified of the freedom of existence, the freedom that we have, the possibilities that we have to be other than what we are. I often think that it's not its not all of these, it's not sangsara that is the problem. And here by sangsara, I mean all of the unvirtuous behaviours that we often engage in, uh, accompanied by a feeling tone of dukkha. It's not so much that that's the problem, it's that the fact that we won't renounce it that's the problem. We won't give it up. It's almost as if we are captivated. There is a word in Pali which says that until we have some sense of disenchantment, the word is nibida in Pali, until we get a sense of disenchantment with the sense of I, me, mine, and everything that implies in terms of possessiveness in this world, then we will be, in some senses, bound to forms of behavior that we cannot liberate ourselves from. So the I itself the very notion of the I is one of the major distortions of perception. When we the verb we are self ing rather than we are a self. There's a very big difference and there's a very big shift in our perception when we see ourselves as verb forms rather than nouns. You know Nouns which are often uh, you know, captured in ordinary terms of phrase such as, that's the way I am. Yeah, I ever uttered that one even just to yourself? That's the way I am? Yeah. Take me the way I am. Yeah. What this means is, is actually saying is I am this type of person and I won't change. Yeah. There is deep clinging to the sense of self there um, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was, um, I think had a wonderful diagnosis of this in, in terms of our negation of our existential freedom and he said basically human beings wanted to turn themselves into tables and chairs <laughs> tables and chairs have a repleteness you know, they have a plenitude to them a substantiality you, know, you don't see that many tables and chairs changing that quickly do you Uh, they have a solidity in the world they have a presence in the world in their very, in a sense, almost heaviness Um, their substantiality as human beings we lack that substantiality we don't have that psychological substantiality so we have to, in some ways create almost a spurious substantiality to make ourselves into a something of some form it's not accidental that one of the first questions often that people ask other people is what do you do yeah, as if it somehow defines who they are yeah. Yeah, as if it somehow captures the very essence of their being uh, pins them down um, you know, that very question itself, I think, shows you how much the, the sense of identity is created through things such as professions, what people do, how they see themselves. You yeah. that's turning yourself into a thing. The moment you do that to another, you're turning them into a thing. And the moment you do that to yourself, you turn yourself into a thing. I was once teaching in South Africa many years ago, actually, the very first time I went there, in 1989. I was teaching in South Africa, and I fell into the trap of actually asking that question to somebody. And he came up with the most beautiful answer. Um, he came up with this answer. I said to him, what do you do? And he said, I play at being professor of linguistics. <laughs> yeah. I thought the idea of playing is a wonderful idea, because actually, although it can be serious play, that's what we do. We play at things. We are not them. You know, we have roles and we have responsibilities, and yes, the, you know, some of those responsibilities are literally very serious that we have. But we're not that. There is no sense of identity that we gain through that because, as we know, again, impermanence, coming back to one of the other distortions of perception, you know, we are not permanently that whatever role, whatever particular status you may have or profession you may engage in, that at some point will be taken away from you. It's taken away from you via illness. It's taken away from you via retirement. um, By even, you know, by being a parent, you know, in in the close identification with that role, that changes. It doesn't remain the same, you know. So no matter how you try to identify yourself and try to pin yourself down, you are changing. No matter how we try to do it, and it's even more worrying when we try to do it to others, try to pin them down, to try to turn them into a self. Again, talking from the Western tradition as opposed to even the Buddhist tradition here, there's a, a philosopher who used to write in French called Emmanuel Levinas, who said, when we look into the face of another, we look into an infinity. We look into an infinity, something that can never be grasped. Every time I try to grasp this person, they recede from me. Um, Any attempt to try and grasp that person is to totalize them, to try and have them as an object for your manipulation. so that we you know, are trying to manipulate others by grasping them in particular ways, seeing them as this, seeing them as that. I don't know if you've ever had this experience yourself of actually somebody trying to say, oh, you're that kind of person. You know? Have you ever noticed the sense of actually, no, I'm not, that arises when somebody says that to you? <laughs> You know, there's always an exception to, you know, you're a calm sort of person, aren't you? Yeah. And uh, you thinking, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it offends some sensibility that we have about us not being a thing at all. So when we have this... This assuming self where there is not self. This is what the Buddha is speaking about. This is one of the other radical distortions of our perceptual processes that we can engage in, both towards ourselves and towards others. It's limiting. One of the things we should, in some sense, celebrate is the self as process. If we couldn't do that, we wouldn't change. None of the cultivation that the Buddha speaks about, the cultivation that is possible through the meditative path, none of the changes which would occur would be possible if we were a static thing, if there was some kind of static essence to us. So this is a very practical teaching. It's a practical teaching about letting go of ourselves, Letting go of the narcissism that's associated with being a self. If you know the story of Narcissus, in many different versions of it in the Western tradition. It was very popular in the Middle Ages. Um, but the story of Narcissus is the story of the beautiful young man who sees his own reflection in the, in the still pool of water, uh, falls in love with his own reflection, and actually ends up falling into the reflection and drowning. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful story uh, because I think it's very literally reflective of the way that we're often a self in this world, which is we're drowning in ourselves. Yeah. We're literally drowning and steeped in self and, of course, its direct correlate, which is selfishness. Yeah. We become selfish through being a self. We become neurotically selfish. You know, by grasping after what is important for me. You know, me becomes the major trope of all of our experience. It's there which is dominating all of our psychological conditions. You know, right down almost to the very point of waking up in this tradition, that we still have this subtle sense of I am going on. Yeah. You know, this is spoken about as being something called mana or conceit uh, within there and you know, Buddhism loves lists I don't know if you ever noticed this it loves lists and there are three different forms of conceit which are spoken of one of the forms of conceit is I am better than you know, notice the I am in this uh, there's the other form of conceit which is I am worse than yeah. seems a strange form of conceit but it's still a conceit you know, I substantiate myself and I turn myself into something by saying, actually, I had a much worse time than you. Yeah. I'm really not as good as you at doing that. Yeah. You're turning yourself into a self in that way by saying, I am worse than. Then there's what I call the conceit of mediocrity. I am the same as. Yeah. You know, aren't we all the same? Yeah. Don't we all do the same thing? Oh, I'm just the same as you. No. Now, all of this is the substantiation of a self at a very, very deep level. At a very, very deep level. But uh, we turn ourselves into this self. Just finally to finish off, I'll finish off with a little story. Again, the story I've often told here. But it's, it's, yeah, I think it's very indicative. Uh, in my own training, again with the same teacher I was speaking about earlier on about his you know, dukkha, rubbing your arm against a brick wall, we had to go through an experience. We did months, um, if not, you know, I think it was weeks or months. It was a long time. I know that of actually doing this meditation process of looking for the self. Yeah, we actually had to do this, looking for the self, and we had to go. With, and every day you would have this meditation which would say, you know, is yourself your hair follicle? is yourself your big toenail, is yourself your spleen, is yourself your liver, is yourself this, is yourself that and we went on days and days and days <laughs> doing this and I must admit this was a part, fairly early part of my training and I got quite upset about it and I said to the teacher, I said, why are we doing this? We've been doing this for weeks, you yeah. I mean, is the self this? Is the self that? You know, we do this you know, literally seven hours a day, you know, week after week after week. And he said, Well, you know what it's like, you know, um, he said it's a bit like losing your wallet. I said, What? What do you mean losing your wallet? You know, what's that got to do with it? You know, Tibetans are very practical, they like to sort of stick with practical examples. He said, well, you know what happens when you lose your wallet? What, what do you do when you've, you've discovered, you, you search in your back pocket and you find out your wallet's gone? He said, don't you look in every possible place it might be? <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point of the exercise is simply to keep on looking to see if you can find this thing until you eventually discover that you can't find it. Because it actually wasn't there as a fixed thing in the first place. Yeah. Now, what I want to say right at the end of this is this does not negate our what I call what I call a working sense of self that we might have. What it really is negating is the sense of any idea of fixity. Yeah. It's positively dangerous to talk about no self. You know, what we're talking about here is what is not self. What is not self is something which isn't fixed. Yeah. It's not as if you know, after, this, um, after this talk, you will have gone out with a self-shaped hole in you. <laughs> you now I came in here with a self and now all I have is a self-shaped hole where the self used to be. It's not like that at all. Um, what this is meant to indicate is that actually a, a good, healthy, working sense of self is okay. It's when we start to fix it, give it qualities, define it, create something static out of it, try to make it, as I've tried to indicate to you, into something. you know that is when it becomes dangerous. That is actually the source of, actually there's no word in Pali for this, but it's the source of what we call egotism in the West, the kind of egotism that we all grasp to in some form, where we elevate our self, me, who I think I am, over others. So when we search here, we search not for a fixed self, but we search for a not-self what is not self and that leaves open all of the possibilities that we have as human beings all of the potentialities for being different yeah. this has a, a very big ethical side an ethical component attached to it and if we get time I'll touch a little bit on this as well, so there's an ethics to not self yeah. which actually being a self and identifying oneself in that way leads to the ethics of selfishness, if that doesn't sound like an oxymoron, you know, which I think it is, basically. It leads to behaviours which are based on selfish behaviours because of the elevation of ourself over others. OK, well, I didn't get through nearly as much as I wanted to this evening, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, we'll pick this up yet again <laughs> after tomorrow night. So we'll have question and answers tomorrow night, and then we'll pick up hopefully, some of the threads that I've given tonight and then develop it a little further. Okay, so thank you, everybody. And we're back at quarter two for the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.